Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Talk. We are here. Yes, we are. It is February, and it's 2016, and it's been a pretty mild winter in New York City. It's a little cold today, but it's, I'll take it. December, January, we weren't bare. We had one snowstorm so far. We've had some really warm days. I think last week was a Wednesday or Thursday. I was biking around today. I bike around all day. I got a bicycle, like a, like a bicycle bicycle. I started out early in the morning, and it was chilly. And by mid-afternoon last week, I was, like, in a T-shirt. I had, like, everything in the back of my bike in the basket. I'm like, man, this is end of January, and it's this good. Um, shout out to my friends down at Batard. We've I, I have known Drew Nieperon since before many of you who are listening were probably born. Uh, Drew and I are the same age, and we go back to our mid twenties, which means a long time ago in New York. The mid eighties is the era. Um, Drew worked at Tavern, not when I was there. Drew worked at Maxwell's Plum. I didn't, but I worked at Tavern. Um, when Mondrachet first opened, and it was David Boulay and Daniel Johannes on the floor. Uh, that first year, I was a customer a couple of times. So that Mondrachet space is kind of hallowed ground in New York City. It was the – opened the same year as Union Square Cafe. And in a lot of ways, those two, those two owners, Danny Myers and, and – um, Drew Nieperon became the empresarios of their generation, and they transformed the neighborhoods in the process. Um, if you weren't in New York in the 80s or early 90s, 14th Street was an absolutely bleak stretch of retail. It was horrible. Uh, the park was a mess. It was full of crime, full of drugs, and who would have known today? And Tribeca was really – it was there was nothing down there. I lived there. My first apartment was at, was at 310 Greenwich Street in a Mitchell-Lama building. And there was nothing down there. So Montrachet was huge. And then Montrachet became Corton. And then Corton became Betard. Of course, all references to Burgundy. Burgundy House, Burgundy Regions. Um, and I think Betard's great. We filmed there. We filmed also when it was Corton. Uh, Drew's great. So I had to go back for a meal. I took my two camera guys and my editor out for just like a – Postseason, let's go out, not film, eat, drink, and be merry. We had lots of fun, so that was cool. And I and I've got a great show here today. We're doing something a little bit differently for the last set, um, probably a couple dozen shows of this particular season, where I've had guests on before that I know, and I know they're great. They've been great guests. They've been great interviews. They've been on point, um, which you know, some people are great at it, and some people it's it's more work. Uh, my guest today is one of those. His name's Ryan Sutton. He's been on numerous times. He is the one of the food critics of record at Eater. Kind of covers the high end turf, if I'm allowed to say that. Robert Seitzema does more of the ethnic stuff. I've known Robert forever too. Um, Ryan, before that, was at Bloomberg. So he's been doing this a long time. He's he's a a young voice in this business. He's that's great. I love him. He's super articulate. He's smart. He's got a better job than I do, and very few people. 
I'll ever say that about. Um, he gets to eat out all over New York City all the time. And we're, we're going to start at the end because we're, we're not going to run with this too far. Because I want to talk about Augustine, but I don't want to talk about it at the open of the show. So Augustine is Keith McNally's latest foray. And if you don't know Keith McNally, I don't know. Either you're incurious or you don't know much about the New York scene. Keith, well, back to Tribeca. Keith and his brother opened up Odeon years and years ago. It was really the first restaurant. Patrick Clark was the chef. African-American, super talented guy. Um, it's funny because Keith and Brian couldn't have been more different as people. Brian was, in a word, a scumbag. Keith is a pro. Brian ended up, I don't know where Brian is, raising shrimp in Florida or, or Thailand or something. He screwed everybody he dealt with. He really was a piece of shit. Keith, on the other hand, was a straight-up, straight shooter. So Keith went on to open up, like, uh, talk about greatest hits, pastis, Balthazar, Schiller's on the Lower East Side, uh, missing a few. Um, in any case, they're great, great restaurants, he has a, always omitted a tavern. I mean, hello. And these are all restaurants that are almost impossible to get into. They're constantly busy. Balthazar's like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, brunch on weekends on steroids, um, packed all the time. It's a gold mine. I, don't, I know the numbers. I'm not going to mention them in public. Uh, Mineta, another one. Try, try to get into Mineta Tavern. Try calling them up tonight. Or try calling them up and try to get a 7 o'clock table next week. It's not going to happen. So anyway, his latest projects in this Beekman Hotel, part of Manhattan. I don't travel through much. It's near me, but it's just downtown, and I don't go downtown. Town that way much in the financial district. Um, Tom Kalicki has a place in there called Fowler and Wells. Is that what it is? Fowler and Wells. Fowler. I see. But but anyway. So I was at Augustine for dinner, and I have to say the fucking room, dude. I mean, you walk off the street into a room that looks like it, you've you've left New York. You're in the left bank of Paris in a room that was built 160 years ago. The lighting's incredible. He's got the custom tiles that he, I'm sure he imported from France on from floor to ceiling. I mean, it's great. The front of the house is great. The two chefs, Shane McBride and Chino, are just killers. Um, for those who don't know Chino, perhaps his full name Daniel for Perilla. some. Daniel Perilla. There we go. <laughs> With the big-ass tattoo on his neck. He's such a... I used to live in the West Village, and he did too. I'd see him all the time on the streets. He's just consummate pros, and, and we're going to get to this restaurant at the end, but we'll, we'll talk about the food later. But it's funny. The night that I was there eating, which is the only time I've been there, you were there, Mr. Sutton. So was Steve Quozo. Steve Quozo from, from the, the Post with Jennifer Baum from Bullfrog and Baum, one of the biggest food PR companies in the world, basically, based here in New York City. There were more people there that night. Uh, there Pat, was, Mark Pastore was there that night. There was Ben Leventhal. Ben who, Leventhal at another table. He runs a site uh, or a reservation app called Resi. Yes, and, and was involved in Eater in the early days. Uh, I believe Kobe Levy, who used to run a restaurant called Nico in Soho, was also there that night. Uh, Nick <laughs> Solaris hosted the meat show at Eater. He was my dining companion. And just for fun, I'm not sure if it was that night, but you know what? I'm pretty sure it was. I believe a young man, his name was Carlo Marachi. I believe he was there as well in one of the booths up front. And of course, Carlo Marachi is the chef at Roberta's, Correct. where this show is hosted. And I went around, we'll get to this whole thing. The, the only rub of Augustine, and this is just the way the building works, it's a beautiful little hotel, is at some point during the two or three or four hours you're there, if you're, if you're so inclined and you feel like using the bathroom. It's the long walk. <laughs> it's the Judge Dredd. You know, in the, in the film Judge Dredd, you know, when you retire from public service and you're sent out into the world, that's the long walk. This is the urinary version of that. It's true. It is really... I, when I came out of the bathroom, I'm like, 
how the hell do I get back upstairs again? Like where I was like completely disoriented to go back. And I, and you go through Fowler and Wells or whatever it's called. And, and of course now they got reviewed, but who was there? And we talked for 15 minutes. Tom Calicchio was in the house. He was there that song. night. I he, saw him too. He was there that night. We, he and I chatted for a long time. So there you go. That was like one starstruck night. But let's do this. So, so what Ryan Sutton does that everyone, including myself, is so envious of is he just eats out all the time. Five nights a week? Six nights a week? I eat out a lot. A lot. But, a l- lot. L- but let the record state, according to the Zagat survey in 2017, I know it's called Zagat, but I call it Zagat, <laughs> uh, New Yorkers eat on average out five nights per week combined between lunch and dinner. And so people always think that food critics have this outrageous life that's completely out of line with the rest of humanity. But in reality... That's how New Yorkers eat out. I eat out how New Yorkers eat out. So, yeah, I eat out a whole bunch. Because in New York, we have small kitchens, but there are big restaurants. And, you know, we go where there's more space. It's like, um, it's pretty much how the theory of gas works, from more tightly packed molecules to more loosely packed molecules. (laughs) There you have it. But he gets to eat, you know, I mean, come on. 95% of the time I go out to eat I'm paying, so I'm not making reservations through the publicist, or I'm not texting the chef, can you take care of me tonight? I mean, I've just never felt that that was proper, although those rules seem to have dissolved among, due to like the blogger generation. But uh, I don't do any of those things either, so, let the rec- right. either. So let you the get, re- and this, neither does the New York Times, but I'll tell you, it gets bloody expensive eating out all the time. That's my, my only quip is, and you get to go... Um, to some great, great places, because I read your reviews all the time. So you get to do the tasting menus. I mean, you're at Per Se, you're at Ask, you're going to these restaurants. And I mean, we went out the other night, four of us to Betard, where I love the food. And the wine list is great if you're into Burgundy and you're rich. Um, they try to have some reasonable bottles, but I'm telling you, I'm a wine guy. Like, I hang out with Sam's all the time. I actually looked online on the wine list before I went there because I knew I had to do my homework to, just to try and find, because we, we wanted to drink a bunch of wine. If I wanted to find, we're going to drink this table of four. We'll probably drink three bottles, maybe four. You know, I'm not spending two and a quarter on bottles of wine, and that's like the mid-end of the low end there. So I literally had to like cherry pick like the $70 bottles off of that list. It's tough. It is tough. And, the, but and dinner for four that night was six and change. So that's you, New York. You can spend a lot of money at Batard, but you don't necessarily have to. And, you know, one of the generous things about Drew Nieperant, who owns it along with John Winterman and Marcus Glocker, the Michelin-starred Austrian-French continental restaurant, one of the generous things about it is that it's a cheaper restaurant than it used to be when it had a different name. Uh, under Paul Liebrandt, yeah. uh, it was tasting menu only. Uh, that was my favorite iteration of this space. As you mentioned before, it used to be Montrachet, where I think David Boulay got one of his first big starts in the 1980s. Uh, but at Corton, I believe the menu uh, in its final days was about 155 for the, I think, 14-course menu. And let the record state, when you got 14 courses, there were mini courses within courses. It was like a mini movie within an Almodovar movie. So the potato course was three different plates, sometimes at the same time, sometimes not at the same time. And like you would have like an ice cream cone potato course before your next savory course, or you would have... Um, uh, cotton candy. One of the mackerel courses was cotton candy stuffed with a uh, striped jack. Sorry, striped jack, not mackerel. Uh, it was kind of his weird riff on sweet and savory. Uh, so again, I love Corton. That was actually my favorite high-end New York restaurant, but it was expensive. And now we have Bartard. It's not cheap, but I believe you can go in and get four courses for a about, oh gosh, I don't know, probably 69 to $75. It's the wine where things get expensive. And in the grand scheme of things, a four-course menus in New York, when you think 
Uh, LeBernadin is 150. Uh, Danielle is 142. Jean-Georges is 138. And you have Indian Accent, which I think is around $90. And you move even further downtown, and you have Drew Nieperon, who's been doing it old school for decades. Uh, again, around $69 for four courses, so it's yeah. a pretty good deal. Hell, we'll talk about it later. Maybe Le Grand Wee. Three courses, not four courses, three courses for $172. It's now the most expensive, to my knowledge, set menu in the city. So in the grand scope of things, uh, yeah, you can spend a lot of money at Le Batard, but you can spend a lot more money elsewhere. Yeah, Batard was, if I'm not mistaken, two courses were like 62, three courses were 70-something, and then four was like add $12 to that. And there were a few supplements on the menu. There was a Creekstone steak for two that was a supplement, and there was one other protein, probably foie maybe. I don't remember. We didn't have those. But, yeah, that's a great value. And another one that you didn't mention that I think I thought was really brilliant when they opened, and they stuck to their guns. They bumped the price up when they first opened up. The rest of is Contra down on Ludlow Street. Contra, when they first opened up Contra, I thought it was oh, – because I, I live down there, and I thought it was a little too high concept. It's a funny neighborhood. It's a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of disposable income. It's not like a baller neighborhood. It's more of like a bar – um, music venue neighborhood with some great restaurants thrown in or good restaurants thrown in, now getting better all the time. But when they opened, they were like $55 for five courses. It was a set menu. Your only choice was one of two options for the main. Now they've moved it up, I think, to the mid-60s. But, 67. But that's still crazy for five courses of world-class cooking. Yeah, and they finally got their Michelin star, God yeah. bless. And yeah. they have Wild Air next door, which is a la carte. Yeah. And the, what I find so fascinating about these young chefs, uh, Fabio von Hauska and Jeremiah Stone, is that, to me, the combination of Wild Air and Contra is the modern version of Gramercy Tavern. You know, in Gramercy Tavern, you have your back room, which is expensive, and your front tavern room, which, uh, which is a la carte. Uh, the back room at Gramercy Tavern during dinner is set menu only or tasting menu only. Uh, this is kind of like a bifurcated version of that. Contra is about seven or eight courses, seven courses for $67. Um, you walk up. And you see what they're offering in a given night. And if you like it, you walk in. And if you don't, there are no substitutions. So you know what? You go another night. And if you want to go another night because you don't like that seven-course menu, you walk right next door to Wild Air, which I believe is walk-ins only. And you can choose from about 10 or 12 different small plates. And you know what? You know, Gramercy Tavern is one way of looking at the, the Contra Wild Air split. But uh, a lot of people would use even a different point of reference. It, it, Gramercy Tavern is the New York point of reference. A lot of people would compare Wild Air and Contra to Parisian restaurants. Because right now, if you go to Paris, you see a young chef. And he has his set menu restaurant, like Le Chateau Briand. And then a few doors away, he has his Le Dauphin, which I believe is how you say it, which is your smaller, cooler, hipper uh, neo-bistro of sorts. They're all neo-bistros. You know, sometimes they have set menus, sometimes they're a la carte. But they're generally all under 100 euros a person or thereabouts in France. And that's the same way as this neo-bistro scene is also burgeoning to a certain extent in New York. You have Contra, which we've been talking about. And we also have Samia in South Williamsburg, uh, which is... Is, well, uh, not necessarily the same owners as there used to be at Samia. Now it's just one owner. And the menu started off, I believe, in the mid-70s. But in a few weeks, uh, the menu is going up to $97 per person. But that still gives you a 10-course tasting menu that has a Michelin star and some of the most intelligent and smartest and most delicious vegetable-heavy food in New York. But then again, $97 per person is different than the $75 yeah. that I initially reviewed it at. 
And and uh, just going back to Contra and Wild Air, too, kudos to those guys. From the beginning, when they first opened Contra, um, we get a lot of sommeliers on this show. I live in that wine world. I travel around wine, drink wine, study wine, all that. They were It was a natural wine list from the beginning. It was a great little curated wine list. The sommelier had come from Ten Bells, just south of Delancey, which is a really well-known um, organic bio-natural wine bar. And then when they opened Wild Air, it was full-on... Like, that's all they do at Wild Air is funky, natural, bio-organic wines. And one of the interesting things about that, I'm glad you talked about that, it's interesting to see how the natural wine scene has started to mainstream eyes a little bit in New York. You go to Paris right now, and you go to a hip restaurant like Clown Bar or what have you, and you're almost guaranteed to see an almost entirely natural or biodynamic wine list. And it's not like some of the vinegar you can get here. It's really top-notch stuff. You know, when I, you first start to drink organic wine, it's like someone poured you wheat juice in a glass. I'm like, come on, just give me some champagne. Uh, I believe the scene has, has improved over the years. It I think has. one of the progenitors of natural wine in new york was i believe her name is lee campbell and yeah. she works at reynard and she always had a lovely list there and she always had a, a very deep champagne list i always thought lee campbell and what she did there even if i didn't necessarily love every single wine she poured i thought she was one of the most exciting things about that restaurant and then after lee campbell of course we have contra and wild air which had a heavy natural wine list and now you're seeing natural wines at places like ichimura which just relocated it's the high-end two michelin starred sushi restaurant in tribeca it used to be housed at David Boulay's Brushstroke, and now it had its own uh, location. I think it's on, gosh, maybe Bank Street, maybe not. And the menu previously, $195 per person, is now $300 per person, service included. And they hired away, I believe they hired away, or they happened to have the same guy who used to do the natural wines at Wild there, and so now they're serving wild. Poor now they're serving wild, natural wines at one of New York's most expensive sushi restaurants, which is you wouldn't have thought that would have happened, you know, five years ago. So it's it's weird the way you know natural wines have sneaked their way into the high end dining scene. I think they they might even have one or two of them at La Bernadette. Aldo Sum, the famous sommelier at La Bernadette, has always been kind of one of the naysayers in that movement, but he's found one or two that he likes, and he poured me one last time. I was at La Bernadette in, in December. I usually go there once a day once a year in December for a little Sutton Christmas meal. Good for you, brother. And yeah, I can't leave it. If we're going to mention um, Lee Campbell, I have to give kudos to my, my old dear friend, great friend, Pascaline Lapeltier, because Pascaline was huge. I mean, Rouge Tomat, when she opened it um, uptown, it was very wine-centered. I mean, the, the, we'll talk about the food another time. We're gonna, actually going to have Pascaline and her chef, Andy Bennett, on this show in a couple of weeks. But Pescaline, when I first met her, she was right off of getting her Master Psalm certification, which is huge. One of maybe 20 huge. women worldwide. Huge, huge, huge. Seriously huge. I mean, this year, to tell you how hard it is to become a Master Psalm, this past May, when they did the test, I think believe there were 67 contestants from America and Canada who convened to take a two-day exam, and out of those 67, two passed. I believe that. Yeah, that's what it's, it's brutal. So anyway, Pascal's got an incredible palate, and, and her wine list at the original uh, uh, Rouge was probably 80%, 75% natural bio, and then when Rouge moved downtown to Chelsea, she just, it's, it's like closer to 90%. Um, she's on this show a lot, and Alice Firing is one of my other heroes. Alice is a great, food, a great wine writer who's, as long as I have met Alice, she's been on that bandwagon. And yeah, to, to your point, um, I, I'm... As I transitioned, kind of, I'm drinking a lot more natural wines now, like a lot, lot more, because I Chamber Street 
Dresner, certain imports that are by Zev. I mean, they're just those portfolios, Skernik, Savio Suarez, so many of these guys, Kermit Lynch, so many of these great importers, you realize how heavy their lists are of natural producers. Um, and, and the smaller ones, like you were saying, the vinegar thing. I remember the first time I ever went to Ten Bells, you go in, it's this dark, even during the day, it's dark because it's on the south side of the street. You know Ten Bells? Uh, I don't. I know Chambers. And it's on the dark side. It's, it's, it's on Broom Street, and, a, and it's on the south side, so it never gets any sun. And you go in there, it's, and it's always kind of full of hipsters. And I remember, like, they were pouring me these wines, and I was like, what the fuck? It was like everything was like Brettomyosins, those things you're getting from, the, from, from just, like, funk that won't go away that's part of the fermentation, but it's a little bit on the dirty side. And then that vinegar is just acidic acid, which is just a, a false. I mean, it should not be there. And if it doesn't blow off, it's a So, yeah, I remember just having glass after glass of, like, question mark wines what the heck is this? what is this stuff it's like an experiment gone wrong but now the natural winemakers have gotten much much better in the last 15 20 years and i I'm, i've been drinking wines from the jura i had a couple of bottles last week in, in my house in cape may and one was a chardonnay from the jura that was not oxidative it was reductive and it was so pure and so clean and so nuanced and i was like this is heaven uh and then another was a, another jura red a plus and it was just divine just beautiful high toned fruit super clean just changes from glass to glass within the bottle anyway so why i have ryan sutton on for an hour today is because we just chewed up 21 minutes see and we and we didn't even go to my first question because i don't really follow a script here i come in with a little notebook oh it's fun just to have a conversation you know get a (laughs) get ourselves off message it's (laughs) This whole show is off message. So let's, in in as brief as you can, we're going to recap last year. We're into 2017, but 16 was a really interesting year in New York. Lots going on. Uh, Not surprisingly, um, La Cucu really kind of walked away with restaurant of the year. Uh, The chef, American chef, came in from Paris where he had done really, really well, blew up basically. Steven Starr, who's a super successful restaurateur based in Philadelphia, but who's really made inroads here in New York City. Uh, Steven has restaurants that make, make him a fortune that I'm not a fan of, but it's a business, folks. They make money. And those restaurants allow him to do these kind of smaller projects, although there's nothing small about Lo Cuckoo, where he can sort of pick talent, curate talent. He has Alex Lee as his like Wizard of Oz, and Alex was Danielle's chef de cuisine forever. Now he's part of Steven Starr's empire as like the guy. So there was so much talent. Talk about that restaurant. I know you already covered it here. And then also talk about Aska and Olmsted. Those three would be great. Of course. Uh, Look Cuckoo is just an awesome restaurant. And like you said, Steven Starr uh, in the eyes of many came to New York riding the twin horsemen of the apocalypse. Morimoto and Buddha and what is this guy doing bringing a bunch of big old Asian stadium-sized clubster on the city? Meatpacking, meatpacking district. Avoid the meatpacking district at all costs. Right? You know, why don't you just lead these places in, uh, in, in Philadelphia? I, you know, it's funny. I actually had a really good meal at Morimoto when it first opened. I re-reviewed them, uh, or I reviewed them for the first time myself last year. I gave Morimoto one star and Budokan zero stars. So I'll, I'll leave that analysis at that. But what's interesting about Steven Starr is that he's really become – and I've said this a lot, and I'll say it again, uh, the Warren Buffett of the restaurant world. Uh, he's made his money through uh, mass means, so to speak. You know, Warren Buffett has his Coca-Cola, I believe, that he you know owns a whole lot of. But he's also known for curating young talent. You know, he has some of his Hollywood blockbusters pay for his independent films. His blockbusters, of course, as I said, are Morimoto and Budokan. And his independent films are places like Upland um, in the Flatiron, Gramercy, Park Avenue, South. 
South area where Justin Smiley does his famous uh, short ribs on the bone. Uh, there's also an Upland in Miami, which perhaps suggests that sometimes independent films can go national. But more to your question, we're talking about Le Cuckoo, which is run not just by Steven Starr, but by one of his new, young, talented filmmakers of sorts to continue the metaphor, Daniel Rose. Daniel Rose is known for running Spring in Paris, which I believe is kind of an uh, experimental-ish new French restaurant, all sorts of weird, cool stuff, veal candy, blah, 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 blah. He comes to New York, doesn't do the tasting menu. He goes a la carte, and he serves not just French food, but he serves kind of this weird... Not weird, but really classical, old-school <clears throat> French food. Uh, some of it feels heavier cuisine classique. Some of it feels lighter nouvelle cuisine. But regardless of what you want to call it, it's all quite delicious. And, and I remember, just to, not to interrupt you, but I'm going to, I remember your review started with what it should have, the pike canal. Because that's the dish that, <clears throat> pike canal is just great. You take this really simple a fish is pretty much worthless. It's a freshwater fish. It doesn't have a lot of flavor. It's full of bones. And in classical French cuisine, you know, either they're eating ocean fish or they're eating stream fish. And pike is from, from inland France. Um, you, you, you turn the flesh of that fish into a mousse, which is – we won't go into how you do it. But you're in, it involves air and egg yolks and egg whites and whipping and passing it through tammies. So you, you turn this fish that doesn't have a lot of flavor into this cloud, basically, that's light as a feather, poached in milk, served with a sauce nantua, which is a beautifully re- reduced lot. Lobster sauce made from lobster shells, and I won't go into the recipes. But and but that's a dish that had its heyday in the sixties and seventies, if not you know mid century. I was lucky enough to have eaten the last pike canal to come out of the Caravel kitchen because we filmed closing night, oh, my and dude. we were the last table to eat because we were the film crew. Um, so that was part of our, our long meal. Um, but so that's how you began your review, which I thought was really a, a, tr- a, 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 a appropriate tribute to that's a dish that just speaks to what they're doing. Yeah, uh, pike canals are it's really a dish of memory. M- yeah. Maybe you uh you know we've all watched uh Goldfinger with the original James Bond Sean Connery. If you read the book by Ian Fleming, uh James Bond actually has some thoughts about pike canal. Um you know, he was heading I think into Lyon and he wanted to stop in a town outside uh, and have Pikenels, but he never actually has them, and he continues to pursue his Mark Goldfinger. And what I think is brilliant about that little passage in the Ian Fleming novel is that he likes them so much, but to him, he never even gets a chance to try them in a book. They're a dish of memory. They're a dish of longing. And that's really how Pikenels are today, because they're seen so rarely uh, in the States. Uh, of course, I understand you can get them in Lyon, in the gastronomic capital of France, where Daniel Rose, the chef at Le Cucu, trained, but you, it's hard to find them here in New York. You can get them at Benoit, where I think Pierre Chatelain is still the chef. He used to be at Le Cirque. You can find them at Le Grand Wii, where, again, I said the menu is now $172 for three courses, which is a lot of money. I believe they serve them in a champagne sauce with American sturgeon caviar, and you know what? They're effing fantastic. But now you can get them not in a stodgy midtown restaurant, albeit a beautifully stodgy midtown restaurant that serves excellent food. And you can now get them in a downtown restaurant, Stephen Starr's Le Cuckoo, Daniel Rose, Pike Canel, all sorts of awesome food, and... You know, I'm glad I got that Le Grand Wii mentioned in there because that's what Le Cuckoo is. It's getting younger New Yorkers and older New Yorkers interested once again in 
the haute cuisine that kind of first came to New York in the 1950s, that Le Pavillon-esque yeah. style fair. And so we're, we're getting a new generation interested in this cuisine that meant so much to our city. And you have a young guy cooking it, and you have people of all ages in there making reservations three weeks in advance, uh, getting ready to have just absolutely wonderful fare. But if you know, if you can think of one thing from there, Pike Canal with, I know you called it sauce Nantua, they called it sauce American over there. It's still lobster no matter how you, what you want to call it. And it's super concentrated. It's, it's like one of the best lobster bisques you can ever have. And there has to be a, this great big Pike Canal in the middle of it. I think, I think if I go back to my saucier days, which is, you know, the Eisenhower administration, um, American lobster Nantua shrimp. Same idea. It's like a bisque made from a crustacean shell that ends up the color by because you're using coral. You're right, crawfish. My mistake. No, but it's my that's that's but that's that's the difference because we had to know all that shit back in the day. We had little books we carried around like the Le Method de Cuisine, and chefs would tell you what the specials are, what the garnish was for the consomme, and you had to like know that shit. I need to brush I'm, up on some of it myself. You know, I used to read uh, when I was first starting to train as a food writer and as a food critic. I would you know on the weekends I would always read La Russe Gastronomique, yeah, but right. you know it, it it quite frankly needs a little bit. Of an update, it's <laughs> yeah. you know now you're better off reading some of the more modern tomes, the French Laundry Cookbook, what Rene Redzepi has to say, you know the Momofuku yeah. Cookbook. You know it's right now, you know cookbooks are such living, breathing um, manifestations of cuisines that that's where I've found I've gotten most of my education from not just eating at restaurants but reading uh, what all these chefs have to say about the state of modern cuisine. And you know still to this day, you know say what you will about per se, it's you know both Pete Wells and I gave it pretty tough reviews. Uh, I don't think there's a better way to understand haute cuisine, or at least the American variant of it, than Thomas Keller's French Laundry Cookbook, uh, which he co-wrote with Michael Roman. It is it, it is the perfect – I don't say it's the perfect cookbook because a lot of people still buy cookbooks to uh, cook, which is not something that we do, or at least that I do a whole lot of in New York. I, I buy cookbooks to learn. I, I, I go – I buy cookbooks to, when I say learn, I say not just learn about technique, I buy cookbooks to learn about the ideas that underpin the food that someone cooks. And when you open up the French Laundry Cookbook, he talks about Thomas Keller, his law of diminishing returns, which is why he serves a long tasting menu. So instead of being overburdened with 16 bites of pork chop, you simply have one or two or three bites of, you know, veal sweetbreads. And when you have that, that one bite and you finish it, you wish you had one more of those bites, and then you have another thing, replace it. And that's how he keeps desire uh, engendered within a patron over the course of an 11, 10, or 13 course meal. And those are the things he talks about in the French Laundry Cookbook. And that's a, it's such just a, it's, it's really a brilliant way to indoctrinate yourself into the culture of modern American luxury and American tasting menus. It's just too bad, and I'm not trying to make a drive by here that I don't think per se is, is the restaurant it used to be. Yeah, you had said that, and, and it's you had said that prior, and then Pete concurred almost a year to the date. And I can, everyone asked me about your all of your comments, and I said, you know, I, I, I ate there a year after they first opened, and it was one of the best meals I'd had that year. Um, Alan Ducasse's kitchen um, in the back of the Essex house was another one. DDA Elena was the chef at the time. It was just astonishing. This was food that was... Absolute three-star Michelin food, spot on. And then I ate there in two. I ate again at Per Se in two thousand seven or eight in the salon. But it's the same menu, and it was this huge tasting menu. And I just, it was spot. It was just, it was perfect food, rooted in French technique, but extremely well. I mean, there wasn't everything that was on a plate was was spot on. And it's funny with because I, I I was really wondering this year, post your takedown, and then. 
Wells's concurrence, going from four stars to two. It's a big, big freaking deal. Big deal. I was really curious to see what Michelin would do. And they didn't do a gosh darn thing. They didn't do a damn thing, which is, which is funny because I, I don't do a lot of panning on this show, but when, when, when Michelin first came out with their New York book, they had a very charming spokesman. Uh, Jean-Luc Nahoy. Jean-Luc Nahoy, very handsome guy, very rustic guy. And, and they are, I think Bullfrog and Bomb was doing the PR. I was doing radio at WOR. Um, I had Jean-Luc on. Um, told him I, I got a copy in advance. No, advance, I got a copy the day it came out. But, and I looked at it and I just shook my head. I'm like, you don't get New York. This is just, this isn't right. And, you know, you can't. You can't have these standards that you were using for maybe, you know, Paris. For New York's a different animal completely. America's a different space. But anyway, we did a, uh, we, we did a, a big book party up at Barnes & Noble and Time Warner when it was there. And I put together a panel with Mimi Sherton and John George and Danny Meyer and uh, Kate Crater. And then we all had a dinner together. But to me, Michelin was like it's like a brand. It was like the idea that, that they could suddenly – I mean, they were always great in Europe. It was the gold standard. That's true. I mean, Michelin chefs lived and died by that release every year. And I think they really understood France. They understood – I'm not sure they got Italy too well at all. But they understood France, Switzerland, Germany, England. And I still have copies of all my Michelin Guide Rouges going back from the days I traveled there to eat. And then I thought when they came here, oh, are you, this is just – you're just branding. You're just getting this thing. And now it's Tokyo and now it's Vegas and now it's Chicago and now it's – the Michelin Guide of movies or something. And you know what? Gosh, you know, part of me really does love Michelin because I love there's this organization that's pouring all sorts of money into what is, for lack of a better term, not the most profitable endeavor, which is paying people to eat fancy food. And I respect the fact that they pay a lot of people to do it. They're inspectors. I understand they work very hard. I understand the reports they fill out after they eat at the restaurant sometimes can take an hour or two to actually complete. I respect that they've been trying harder to shower uh, their awards, which are stars, one, two, or three, on not only fancy French restaurants and American restaurants, but more uh, – Ethnic restaurants. Uh, people don't like when I use that word, but I, I literally do mean ethnic in this sense. And I'm talking about restaurants that represent the cuisine of like one people or one nation. I think that is an ethnic restaurant. And so they've been showering some more awards on certain Mexican restaurants and a few Thai restaurants here in New York. But the problem of Michelin uh, is not just it's sometimes narrow mindedness in terms on in terms of on whom or on what restaurants they bestow stars. The problem with Michelin and the contemporary food media awards landscape is the fact that their brand is trust us you know when you read a food review by pete wells or adam platt or steve quozo or ryan sutton or tejo rao any of us regardless of whether you agree with us or not we take the better port part of 700 to 2,000 words to explain why we're giving four stars to samia or downgrading per se to two stars but when you read michelin there's no argument. There's no critical thinking. You simply have a guidebook, and it says, per se, three stars, Danielle, two stars. And if you read the little blurbs beneath each of those starred ratings, it's pretty hard to tell why one has yeah. the greater rating and why another doesn't. It's a trust us mentality that it's hard to have a relationship with someone who just says, well, this one is better and that one is not. Well, listen, you guys are eating out so much and you're filling out these detailed reports. I know you're smarter than this. 
change your brand just a little bit so you can convince us to fall in love with you because we want Michelin to be part of the conversation because chefs care about them. To I understand certain diners care about them, and we love reporting on them. Just make yourself part of the larger dialogue on food rather than being this totem pole that says this is – this is this is how it is. This is three stars. This is two stars. This is one star. And when you're making an argument, and Michelin sometimes does, when you call them up and ask them why they downgraded it, and I get to report those interviews once a year. But again, that's not criticism. That's not guidebook writing. I mean, they're not part of the larger conversation. And I think that's going to start to chip away at their value if – they, when they realize that diners want something more substantive. They just don't want stars. Anyone can give stars. You can go to Yelp for stars. What a diner wants is authority, and authority is not derived from history, from past actions. Authority is derived from good journalism, from good storytelling, and that's what reviewers provide, and that's what Michelin does not provide. And for what it's worth, the 50 best list doesn't provide that either. Yeah, Pellegrino. Whatever. Don't get me started on any of that. I'm an old, I'm, a, I'm a cook. I'm a chef by nature. So we're, I always had a different, difficult relationship with critics. Hey, let's do this. We're 37 minutes into the show, and we've touched on two things of the 12 that I wanted to because I don't really give a shit about my list. I'm having more fun not looking at it. But we have to take two minutes for a spot for the people to make the show possible and uh, other shows in Heritage Radio. Uh, so here I'll be back in about a minute and a half. Stay tuned. Ryan and I are going to run with this ball a little further. Folks, Mike Calameco here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-'80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome. Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. Okay, we're back. We're back. We're back. The mics are hot. We're good to go. <clears throat> so, again, my guest is Ryan Sutton, one of the critics of record at Eater in New York, which is a great, great place. They've been at it for years. They keep getting better and better and better. Now they have uh, a, a, a critic that covers the United States. They have in New York Ryan Sutton, who kind of does the high, higher end stuff, covers the top end of the market. And then Robert Seitzma that just has always done what he's done so well. I've said this for years that I don't think anybody – he was for many, many years a food critic for the Village Voice um, and a neighbor of mine off, off Bleecker Street when I used to live in the West Village back then. 
I'd bump into him and talk to him. I read him every week, and there was nobody, and there still is nobody, I think, that knows more about ethnic, far-flung, crazy-ass eateries in New York than him. He's just, I mean, he'll go from the Bronx to Bensonhurst to Sheepshead Bay to you name it, to all over Queens to report on stuff. I'm like, seriously, dude, how'd you even hear about this place? But he's got a bunch of people, he's got a posse, and he gets heads up all the times. All right, you had a little review of some dishes that you loved, and I have had none of these. And what I love about this list is that it's it's not like you're oh, that dish that was my sixth dish at the tasting menu here, or, oh, the $42 foie gras sauté at this place, oh, the caviar at Petrosian where I sat there for an hour and they spoon-fed me beluga. No, it's kind of a list that's, it, it goes from the clam pie at Pasquale Jones, which will set you back all of $18. A little bit more now. Okay, but whatever. It's worth, right. worth every penny. Um to this crazy talk to me. Let's let's start with this thing because I remember reading this review. I, I think this is the place you reviewed. And I thought this was hysterical. You reviewed some. I don't even know what you were doing there. It was a restaurant in Hell's Kitchen on like Ninth Avenue in the forties or fifties. Guantanamera. <laughs> and I'm reading your review. Going it's like, what were you even doing there, man? Were you like scoring some weed? So this restaurant's called Vaca Frida. What is it? Because I remember in the review reading this, one of my sons kind of like kind of like he's just a picky pain in the ass and he's mid-20s and he only eats like five things and one of them is skirt steak which i have to buy him at citarella which is don't even ask me what i pay for that effing skirt steak but it's great but it's so expensive anyway anyway how do they make this dish what is this dish and, and but, but, but how did you find this place it's like a bar or something uh guantanamera uh in hell's kitchen um you know what it's not quite hell's kitchen it's it's just south of Columbus Circle. It's kind of east of Hell's Kitchen and north of Midtown. It's kind of Nowheresville is the best way to describe it. How did I find it? I live in Nowheresville. I live <laughs> just around the block from this restaurant and it's been there for quite some time. Uh, it used to be a Cuban restaurant before it became Guantanamera. Uh, I believe it was the same owners. Um, in any case... What I find so exciting about Guantanamera is that it's a restaurant that, you know, I'm pretty sure doesn't have a publicist. <laughs> uh, I think they just opened up another location in Forest Hill, so God bless them. And it's a different style of dinner. It's almost dinner theater. You go there, you have some Cuban food, and they have live music every single night. And it's not like Bemelman's where you have to pay $20 cover charge to <laughs> subsidize the band. Uh, the band's... When you eat there, uh, the prices are supposedly reflective of what it costs to have live music every night, although it's hard to tell because the prices are so low. So quite frankly, how they pull all this off, and some of the live music is pretty good. There's actually a stage in the background uh, at the end of the restaurant. So how they actually pull this off financially, I'm not quite sure. But nonetheless, it's an absolutely crazy place to hang out. Um, half fried mojitos on Tuesdays. And one of their signature dishes is vaca frita, which is a traditional Cuban dish of fried skirt steak. And so it's simply shredded skirt steak that's been pan-fried, uh, served with a little bit of mojo, I believe, which is a Cuban-style kind of citrus oregano sauce. And you eat it with uh, moros y cristianos, you know, the uh, black beans and rice, so to speak. Um, that's a loose translation of Moros y Cristianos, but nonetheless, uh, that's what it is. And it's, and it's a blast, and it costs like $23, and it's a meal on a single plate. And that's one of the other great things about Guantanamera. It's not a small plates place. It's not a prefix place. You go there, you get one thing, that's dinner. All right, next on this list. It was beautiful in the photograph, and I'm sure 
because of the pedigree of the restaurant and the way food's done these days, there was more to it than it appeared. So the the restaurant's Olmstead. The dish that Ryan loved is is called carrot crepe. And in the picture, which is probably Daniel Krieger, one of my heroes, incredible food photographer, his his girlfriend, soon to be wife, Jordana Rothman, bow to Jordana. She's brilliant. She's like Ryan Sutton. She's one of these people that I've known her. She's she's been in the food space. I think I met her in oh five, oh six, when she was a, a a cub reporter for Time Out New York under Gabrielle Gershenson. She was smart as fuck then. She has gotten nothing but gotten smarter and on on point then. And she's one of those people who can think fast, talk faster, and just blow you away with what she knows. She's like I, I she's never down. Um Anyway, so I look at this picture and it's like, oh, there's like a, a picture of a, a large crepe, maybe overlapping the borders of the dish, some kind of long strand of carrot that's been cut on a mandolin and a couple of sprigs of chervil or something. I don't know. I didn't really study it. A lot of microgreens and tweezered stuff. <laughs> but then that's not the whole thing. So what is it about this dish and what was below the crepe? Oh, well, below the crepe. And again, this is a carrot crepe. So when you order something called a carrot crepe, right. you think you're going to get something folded. You pick it up with your hands yes. and it, it tastes like you something you get out of a street vendor in, in Paris or what have you. Um, but of course, if you go to Paris, you'll never find a carrot crepe, nor did I see any carrot crepes when I used to live in Russia, where crepes or blini are part of your daily street vendor diet, or at least it was a daily part of mine. So in any case, you go to Olmsted, uh, run by Greg Backstrom, uh, explored Hill at Stone Barn, chef de cuisine and chef. And he used to be at uh, Alinea as well, the avant-garde tasting menu restaurant in Chicago. So you get your carrot crepe, and you think it's just a crepe, and you think it's, uh, it's going to be a crummy dish because it's just this blob of orange with all sorts of tweezered microgreens on it. And then you cut underneath, and there's a beautifully sweet carrot sauce. And there are beautifully delicious, briny, and metallic slow-cooked clams. And when you eat it all together, you were thought in the first place you're just going to have this crummy carrot crepe with tweezered stuff. But instead, you're having this weird, deconstructed, reconstructed version of what you could argue to be linguine with clam sauce. Except it's linguine. Instead of linguine, you have your carrot crepe. Uh, you have your clams that are whole instead of chopped. And instead of a traditional butter-garlic sauce, you have this weird, delicious orange carrot sauce. And it's uh, an incredibly unlikely and unexpected pasta dish that reminds me of something that we all grew up eating in New York, traditional linguine with clam sauce. But this is kind of this avant-garde version of it with uh, carrots infused into everything, giving it all a beautiful sweetness. So it's such a lovely dish. Indian accent, I can't even do my own handwriting, Makan Malai or something. Uh, Makan Malai, traditional, I think, northern Indian street food. Tell me about Indian dessert. accent again, because it's, it's been off my... Where is it? Who is it? Indian accent is in La Parker Meridian Hotel. Oh, shit, it's new. Uh, it's reasonably I new. I used to work in the... That's where the Maurice was for years. Me and Delivery were there forever. Yeah, and of course, most people think of La Parker Meridian. They also think of the burger joint, that the kind of Rastafarian... Joint place where you go and listen to reggae music and have really great burgers. To, some people would argue it was even one of the progenitors or the uh, one of the precursors to uh, Shake Shack, which, of course, you know, blew up. It was, you know, the artisanal burger joint. And it was completely unexpected because you wouldn't think of getting uh, a cheap fast food style burger in a fancy Midtown hotel. It's in the middle of the hotel. It's in the middle of the lobby. You have to go through a bright. It's weird. It's like it's like you go into the coat check room or something. So where is this space? Is this the old Norma's or is this the new space? Uh, no, Norma's is still there. That's, I believe. That's the ever and never ending brunch on steroids joint. A brunch on steroids. I think like all the brunch dishes at Norma's cost like thirty dollars and you can have your 
$1,000 caviar omelet. And yet they're packed all the time, I must and, say. And they're, they're packed all, all the, the time, time, and they really got in on the all-day breakfast before everyone else did. Although I believe it closes at 3 p.m., but still, it's one of those places where you can go and you can get breakfast at 1 p.m. and, 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 and have a blessed. Yeah, I remember when they opened, because that's, that's the old Maurice space. That's where I spent, really cut my teeth early on in New York City. And I remember when they first opened it, I had this concept of this place, they're going to do brunch in Midtown seven days a week. And I'm like, it's never going to work. No way. Brunch is weekend food. No one's going to loll around on it. We all have jobs here. And excuse me, I was so wrong. Oh, well, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have guessed it either. So, you know, so good just, for so them. So tell me about this. Instant, this so where is it in, in the restaurant? So it's in where? Uh, it's in – you don't even have to walk through the lobby. Uh, it's on the south entrance okay. of La Parker Meridian. It has its own entrance through a revolving door. And you go, you sit down, and you – I believe it's a four-course menu for around $90 or thereabouts. You can also do a tasting menu. And their signature dessert is the Makan Malai. Uh, and let the record state this restaurant is an import from uh, New Delhi. I believe some of the same dishes – bit cheaper in New Delhi, but it's slightly more expensive to get to that location if you happen to be geographically situated stateside. But in any case, you're in the restaurant, you get the Mahan Malai, and it's this dish. Apparently, uh, it used to be made or traditionally made um, by letting milk sit outside overnight, and it would somehow aerate and turn into a fluff. I'm not entirely sure on the properties <laughs> that lead to that happening uh, within milk, but what I can say is what you get is a beautiful piece of fluff. You put your spoon in it. It's almost as if you're eating nothing. I believe it's made with heavy cream, and it's infused with the color and flavor of saffron, you know, the true flavor of you know the, the Middle East and North Africa. And I believe there are candied rose petals on top as well, and slivered almonds. And what's truly incredible about the Mahan Malai is that when it's put in front of you, it has the height and width of a sundae that could theoretically feed four if it was that size. Um, but it's not a sundae. It's Mahan Malai. And so when you see this gigantic thing in front of you and you put your spoon in front of it and inside it and you start eating it, you realize that despite its, again, height and width and, and girth and everything, it's really just a dish for one. It, it's truly like eating air, except it's air made from cream. Uh, beautiful, beautiful dish. It's I think, almost the Indian equivalent of, you know, oeuf à la neige. Uh, except it's even lighter than that. Another classic throwback French dish from from my generation and, and the generations preceding me that is probably going to appear on menus again and may even be in, on Le Cuckoo's at some day. Um, so you, I'm scrolling down this eater list of yours, and like I said, it's great because it's ethnically varied. It's not all baller stuff. It's not all like, oh, look at my Instagram feed. I'm here tonight. Ha ha, you're not. Here's my glass of uh, of uh, Bollinger RD next to my four ounces of Savruga. No. So I'm scrolling down this list because that's how you work. That's how you read things on your computer. And suddenly I see a curly fry, and I'm like, what the fuck are we doing? So Quality Eats, this, this is Craig Aketsu the executive chef for all the qualities, and he's a ball. He's amazing. Craig Aketsu worked with Christian Delouvre, got four stars in New York Times um, when they were at uh, Les Binas. He's just a pro. He's a great, great chef. So curly fries, how did that make the list? Why? And tell me about them. Uh, because curly fries are discriminated against, and I wanted to give them <laughs> representation. I mean, it's like drunk college food and shit. Right? I mean, not that I haven't eaten my share, and not that, honestly, I don't love the concept of a curly fry. 
But it's, what is it about these curly fries? Uh, they're delicious, and, <laughs> and the fact that they serve them. And, you know, where in Manhattan, I mean, imagine walking into one of an, an imagine walking into an April Bloomfield restaurant, getting one of her $25 burgers, saying, instead of these beautifully thrice-cooked trips, why don't you make me some seasoned curly fries in the style of Arby's, in the style of a local bowling alley? Well, it's... That type of cooking is not beneath Craig Korketsu, uh, nor should it be. Uh, remember, Craig, as far as I know, uh, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am, is the guy who started putting, did he put grated Cheetos over broccoli, I believe? I think that's one of his signature dishes at the old uh, Park Avenue summer, spring, winter, yes. uh, before it relocated uh, to Midtown to the old Hurricane Club space. Uh, so he knows a little bit about doing uh, high-end versions of junk food, and the curly fries are just delicious, and it reminds me of a less serious time in cooking where you can just eat something that was delicious, and when you, eat, when you ate a curly fly growing up, it wasn't ironic. It was simply tasty, uh, and it was orange because orange is a prettier color than bland yellow which is what most fries are are they making these things are they buying these out of the cisco truck do we know anything about the imprimatur of these particular curly fries uh, are they buying potatoes from a guy named tom who raises them upstate and there's a curly kid in the kitchen with a curly cutter machine i mean who knows yeah, we don't they, know they come out of you know and they're yeah they're, they're they're kobe potatoes and they you know marinate them in beer and play classical music to the you know the potato plants when my kids were little and then it, it kept continuing way past when they were little because i love them i would have to shop you know you, you make these concessions when you have kids because you, you you can I, I didn't want dinner to become you're eating what i'm eating shut the fuck you can't go to bed till you're done i, I kind of grew up in a house like that and i'm like i didn't want to do that again all right i'll make your dinner you have whatever you want my wife and i are eating what we want we're cool we all sit down and get along so I discovered in the freezer section of the local supermarkets in, in the far, the darkest barrens of southern New Jersey, where I reside on weekends and summers, Cape May, that Orida makes these things in like two-pound bags called tater tots. And you put them on a sheet pan on parchment paper, and you bake them in a 350 oven for 35 minutes. God. They're good. Tater tots are great. They're ridiculous. And I remember making a dish. I remember there's a dish, palms, I think it's called palms dauphine, that I made in restaurants growing up, and it was a royal pain in the ass. So you would bake a potato to dry it. You would bake a potato, then peel it, mash it a little, spread it out on parchment, put it back in the oven so it would steam dry because you want to get the moisture out. Then you have that dry potato at kind of room temperature. You had to make patashu, which is a really complicated dough. It's made with milk and flour and butter and you do it over the stove and you have to whisk it and it's very time consuming and then you would fold the great the mashed potato pulp into the patachoo in equal parts form them into balls and deep fry them they were great but i mean that's a pain in the ass it is a pain in the you ass. can go to acme and buy tater tots they're not the same i'm not saying it's apples to apples exactly but in terms of like the amount of work and the amount of pleasure i, I kind of think we're seeing an equivalent uh, without a doubt. And since you mentioned tater tots, let the record state they serve them, to the best of my knowledge, at PDT. Please don't tell <laughs> Jim Meehan's uh, cocktail bar yes. accessible through a secret telephone booth in the East Village. Because and of, I that's right. I think you can even get them with caviar if you want to do the uh, the highbrow, lowbrow thing. Yeah, that's because Dog is next door. And Dog had, had cheese tater tots. I brought my kids there when we're, they were little. And I love Dog. Dog's the best. It's the thing. Dog is like the idea of because in, in Jersey, Jersey's got a tradition of, 
Jersey, whatever. The tradition of deep frying hot dogs, man. That's what we do in Jersey. We get hot dogs, we do deep fryer. So there used to be Callahan's up in up in uh, Palisades Park. And I did a hot dog show years ago. Did a whole tour of New York hot dogs. And, and so what they did is that they wanted that Jersey-style deep fried hot dog. And if you really want to get gnarly, you wrap a hot dog in bacon and deep fry it and it's the schnizzle. And that's precisely what they do at PDT. And their <laughs> best version of that deep-fried hot dog is the Chang dog, uh, which I think <laughs> is still on the menu. It's kind of a hat tip uh, to the cooking of yes. David Chang at Momofuku Noodle Bar and Sambar. And you sit there at PDT. You can't get it at Criffbards. And you're at the bar. You ask for a Chang dog. And they give you a deep-fried hot dog. It's wrapped in bacon and... Chang's signature brand of kimchi is on top of that hot dog. And what's great about David Chang kimchi, it's a little less sour than traditional Korean kimchi. It has a little bit hot... Uh- it's a little bit spicier than most Korean kimchis I've had, and also has a slightly higher sugar content. And so it really is a style of kimchi that isn't so much traditional Korean kimchi. It's more of a kimchi that speaks to the American junk food palate, which is why it works so beautifully on American junk food. A deep fried hot dog. Stoner, it's stoner kimchi. It's stoner food. And, I, and his pastry chef, I love her for the cassettes. I mean, that's like the advent of these, like these smart chefs wrapping their heads around the pleasure of eating. So we only have a couple of minutes left. We started out with Lake Cuckoo, and, and let's end with Augustine. I know you ate there. I know you loved it. Again, homage to classic French cooking. Badasses in the kitchen. You describe it. I'm going to shut up till I close out the show. Oh, gosh. Augustine is... Probably one of my favorite new restaurants of the year, which is a strong statement to make in January. But uh, there's nothing more than I want uh, outside of a classic French restaurant than what they give me at Augustine. You know, you mentioned at the top of the show uh, about the lighting in the restaurants. I describe it in my restaurant as McNally Gold. You walk into any of his restaurants and... It's as if you're in a real-life Instagram filter. Everything is that perfect shade of gold. You know, so many restaurants, you can barely see the patron in front of you, and you need to use a flashlight to read your menu. Won't that find that in a McNally restaurant. You walk into other restaurants like Bruno, and it's hospital lighting. You know, and it's almost as if the chefs want to be able to perform a double kidney transplant in the kitchen. And, yeah, it's beautiful lighting for Instagramming food photos or for plating uh, uh Eggplant, eggplant two ways with 18 different microgreens, but it doesn't necessarily make for very sexy or very pretty dining. McNally, Keith McNally, uh, has McNally Gold as his standard <laughs> restaurant lighting scheme. It's just this beautiful patina that makes everyone look a little bit more tan than they are in real life. It softens out the blemishes on everyone's skin, and it's just a beautiful hue, a beautiful patina that simply makes looking at the restaurant from the outside a little bit more inviting and from the inside it makes everything feel just a little bit warm and of course the warmth is helped by those two awesome space heaters in the foyer of the restaurant and you might think that's a, a minor point to mention on a steamed radio show like this but you know what if anyone's ever been caught by a draft um in the winter um Having been sat at a table right by the door, you probably won't get that here because it's piping warm and it's beautiful inside. And man, that cooking, I, I could go on about the steaks. Uh, I could go on and on and on Creekstone, about the steaks. Creekstone, Creekstone, Creekstone. I, had, I, I was only the one, I had the leg of lamb. I just couldn't resist. The leg of lamb was just flat out. Uh, just, it's, it's a big cut of meat. I can't do that at home. So I'm like, do me the leg of lamb, chef. But it's, it's not just about, you know, and the leg of lamb is badass and it's like 28 bucks. It's a really good deal. But man, the steaks, you know, Creekstone, you can get Creekstone steaks at a, I'm sure a variety of restaurants. You can get Pat Lafrida steaks at a variety of restaurants. Um, and I think 
you know, let me correct myself. I think probably Pat Lafrida is the butcher who uh, gets the Creekstone steaks, if I understand correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, you're sitting there, and it's not just a Creekstone steak. It's a Creekstone porterhouse that's been crusted with Montreal uh, seasoning. You know, uh, the current trend or the longstanding trend has been to let steak speak for itself. And that everything is a product of the raising of the cow and the butchering and the aging. Here they introduce another level of flavor. They they really like to crust their steaks with spices. So that Montreal seasoning it gives it a, a beautiful sugary sweetness in the outside and a little bit of savor and a little bit of celery salt. But the, the seasoning doesn't detract from that 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 beautiful blue cheese funkiness that true steak aficionados love. Or if you get the strip steak, which is I think it's like 60 bucks or or what have you. Uh, It is intensely crusted with peppercorns. It's not like an Oweto Prov. It's it's all different types of peppercorns. Uh, to call it aggressively seasoned would be an understatement. There's enough salt and pepper on the steak to you know send a racehorse into AFib. But you eat it, and you can still taste that that undulating funk throughout the chew. It's not just about the crust, and it's not just about the blue cheese funk. It's about the union of seasoning and steak. It's cooking. It's not just sourcing, which is what too many steakhouses are, and that's what separates Augustine from the rest. It's not just sourcing. It's seasoning, and it's the larger expression of reasonably classic French cuisine from, you know, the the cheese souffles to the... um, I think the Vacherans on the uh, dessert side, menu, yeah. and it's and it's all just a, 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 an awesome place to yeah, hang out great. at eleven o'clock at night. Uh, um, Shane told me that he and Chino um, uh, Keith flew him out to Paris to France actually, and just said, "Dude, you guys have like." Did you write about it? Somebody wrote about it. Maybe he wrote it. They, they had like two weeks, and I forget how many calories a day is, it was. And all they did for lunch and dinner was eat and then make notes and make notes of, of the best of the best of the, and come home and replicate it. And they're good enough to do it, and they've done it. So it's like it's, it's as good as French cooking as you're going to find anywhere in the country, as good as you're going to find anywhere in New York. It's an incredibly good room. Um, love what they're doing. Thanks for the review. Thanks for coming on. See, an hour went by like that thanks to this guy ryan sutton thank you folks take care next week i've got a couple of guests i never know who they are i should be able to prompt next week's show but who cares it'll be next week you can go on the internet and find it you can see who the guests are ryan sutton was my guest today have a good week see you in a week Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Get ready.